Guest speaker today, many of you know, and John Snyder. And uh, John's been a friend since 1997. I met him in Wales on a revival tour, and uh, he was studying revival history, Welsh particularly, revival history. And uh, he loves uh, God's Word. We've been just feasting yesterday. It was a wonderful day. And uh, I want you to listen closely. May God open our eyes. And uh, he's going to come and speak to us God's Word. And, uh, you know, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so let's be prayerful as he comes. All right. Brother, come. Well, it's good to be here with you again. I want us to um, look at the Old Testament this morning together, and so if you have your Bibles, turn them to the book of 1 Kings chapter 11, and we'll get there in just a minute. I think that in spite of the many discouraging things that we can see morally in our day, I would say that we do live in a day of a particular opportunity. And strangely, I think the opportunity is born out of the fact that we live in a day where there's some very discouraging things. The shocking, mindless violence that we hear about on the news where someone goes into a public place and shoots children and adults. The rapid moral shift in our nation, things like these lead people to ask questions that perhaps they weren't really willing to ask before. What's life really about? Is there really an answer to our problems? And often they will come then to church and they will, or to a Christian, and they'll ask the Christian, do you have anything real and substantial that can answer these problems? And where I live in the Mid-South, where everyone is pretty much religious and everyone is pretty much Baptist, um, though, of course, there are others, it's very difficult to find someone who wouldn't claim to be religious, but I find that even where I live in a very traditional area, men and women are willing to ask some hard questions and to find the answers. Some of them are willing to do away with traditions that they've grown up with in religion, and some of them are willing to go back and embrace older traditions that they've never embraced before. There is a window of opportunity. But as with all windows of opportunity, if we we think beyond ourselves, me, my wife, my children, how we're doing today, if we think beyond just my soul, and am I a Christian or am I not a Christian, if we think even beyond these walls, how is our church doing, are we growing, Are are we a people that are happy in the Lord... But if we kind of back up from our own scene and get some freedom to see the bigger picture, I want you to understand that the the window of opportunity is quickly closing. And culturally, people who once perhaps were shocked and willing to ask Christians, what does all of this mean? What do you think about all of this? The tragedy is that many people who go to religious people at a time like this are being given answers that really aren't very biblical. And so... They may be cutting edge and they may seem very effective, but really they don't have any substance to them. So oftentimes church leaders and denominational leaders, well-meaning men and women are offering to the world what the world already has. And after people try these solutions that don't really work, that really aren't anything different than what they already have, then their response to us from that point forward is, well, I've already tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. And it's then very difficult to speak to them after that. I want us to be very clear about life. You, you, and I, we exist for God. This church does not exist for itself. It exists for God. And God does not exist for you. I mean, it's easy when you care about people to think that God must exist to fix people. It's easy when we care about our church to think that God exists to promote this local institution. But it's a dangerous slope. So we want to start where we ought to start. We exist for God. If you are to lift up the honor of God in your 
moment of opportunity in our day, in your area of the world, then you're going to have to be very careful to really think through some things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the tale of four kings. This weekend, those of you that have come to the meetings, you know that we've been looking at what a person thinks about God and how that affects the way they make choices for good or for ill. We looked at two positive examples in the life of Moses and Paul, and then we saw a warning from the life of King Saul. This morning, it's another warning. It's a warning from the history of Israel, particularly four men, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and Asa. Now, that's a lot of history. That's a lot of Bible verses, and so I want to tell you that although I'm not a short talker, I do not intend for us to try to exhaust the passages, because we wouldn't. We would just exhaust you, and so we're only going to hit the high points. But each of these men live in, live in, a, in a time, and they've been given a position of trust from God, that the choices that they make set the course for the nation, for generations to come. These are those extraordinary turning points in history. And what they think of God, which is shown in how they make their choices, is so critical. And what you think of God and the choices you as a church make now, at this point in history, equally critical. Well, let's look at these kings. Now, we're going to look at uh, really three of them are not very encouraging and one is very encouraging. So the first is King Solomon. And that brings us to 1 Kings Chapter 11, Solomon is now an old man, and we're going to be reading uh, portions of the Bible, so stick with me, all right, don't let me lose you, I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through verse 13, this is the end of Solomon's life, listen to what the Bible tells us. But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. When women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so that when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David." I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Well, that's the scene. What's going on? Solomon, in his older years, after so many political marriages, his heart has been turned away from the Lord. It has been turned toward other gods. He has done evil, and the Bible describes the evil of Solomon as, as in this way. He did evil by not fully following the Lord. The Bible describes the sin of Solomon here as an aggravated sin. That's what we would call it. 
Do you know the difference between aggravated sins and what we just consider regular sins? An aggravated sin is a sin that is committed in the face of so much kindness of the Lord. So Solomon, the Bible says, was visited twice by the Lord. That's pretty extraordinary. And not only that, but God particularly instructed Solomon about this very thing. Do not give your heart to the gods of the nations around you. But in light of that extraordinary privilege and that warning, Solomon does exactly what God warns him not to do. So you know the account that God promises to take Israel and to divide it into two, the northern ten tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. And the northern ten will be given to someone else and the southern tribe of Judah will stay with the line of David. That's the first king. Let's look at the second king this morning and that's Solomon's son. His name is Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam and the next one we're going to look at, Jeroboam. All right, now that gets tricky, doesn't it? And I have oftentimes read this passage publicly and swapped their names back and forth until the people in my church are completely confused. And if I do it to you this morning, forgive me ahead of time, but let me give you a little key. I was in Bible class one time and someone said, do you know how to tell the difference between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and, you know, for tests? And I was like, I always get those guys mixed up. Rehoboam is the real king, R. Rehoboam's real king. He's the king of the south. He's the Davidic line. Jeroboam is for the north. Now, what about Rehoboam? Well, the story of Rehoboam, we're going to just hit him. We'll come back to him. But the story of Rehoboam is this. Solomon has built an an amazing nation. Politically, financially, militarily, it's much better off than it was before. Spiritually, of course, we see the decline. But in doing this, Solomon has taxed the people far more than they're willing to pay. And so... He's used forced labor, slave labor of Israelites. There's a lot of things under the surface of this golden age that are not so golden. And so when Rehoboam, his son, becomes king, the leaders of Israel come up to him and the elders say, your father was really hard on the people. But now the kingdom is established, the beautiful palace, the temple, the military towers. Will you be gentle with us? And so Rehoboam goes and he goes to his royal counselors. You know the account. The older men say, it's true. Solomon pushed the country hard. Be wise. Be gentle. Reach out to the people. They'll love you. His college buddies who've been hired as counselors say, don't let them think you're weak. You go out there and tell them that Solomon was nothing compared to what you'll be. He drove them with whips. You'll use scorpions. So... He goes out and he takes the advice of the young men and his harsh words lead to the division of the country. So the ten tribes say, you can keep the Davidic line and you can keep Jerusalem and Judah. We're done with David's um, dynasty. Now, but under the surface, what's happening? In 1 Kings 12, verse 15, we read this. So the king did not listen to the people... For the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word. So what has happened? It is not the arrogance of young counselors and the stupidity of Rehoboam that really is behind what's just happened. What's really behind it is that God has already told Solomon, I will take the nation from your son because you, you funded idolatry. Let's go to the third king, King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the hand-picked man by God to lead the north. He was given promises just like those given to David. And yet, he failed. Let's read the account of Jeroboam. Look at chapter 11, verse 29 through 31, and then we'll jump down to verse 30. 7 and 38. Now it happened at this time, this is 1 Kings eleven twenty nine, that when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. 
Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. Now, jump down to verse 37. God speaking to Jeroboam through the prophet says, So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, if you will heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you, and build for you an enduring house, As I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. That's Jeroboam. What we find in the coming passage that we're about to read is that Jeroboam is at heart a pragmatist. He looks at the scene, and this is how he reasons I've been given the ten northern tribes. By the Lord, but when the next great religious festival, like Passover or the Booths, when that next great festival comes and all Jewish men are to make a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem, to the temple, they've got to leave the north and cross over into the south. And when they are there in Jerusalem and Judah, in the nation of uh, the, the tribe of Judah, and they're worshiping there at the capital where David's uh, grandson is ruling. Their hearts will go back to the line of David and they'll think to themselves, we never should have divided from the south and they will reunite with the south and they will kill me as a traitor. So we've got to, we've got to plan for this. So this is what he does. He adjusts the national religion to benefit himself politically. He is a pragmatist. Pragmatism is described as America's only native philosophy. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism is the view that if something works, it must be right. So instead of beginning with the question, what is right? We begin with the question, what will work? This is what Jeroboam does. Fourteen times after the death of Jeroboam, fourteen times the Bible says... This is the sin of Jeroboam, which men after him, generation after generation in the north, continued to indulge in. And this is the sin which the scripture describes as being the sin that is responsible for the destruction of the northern ten tribes by the Assyrians. Let me read you from 2 Kings. Let me just read you this. It says, Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord, and he made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is this day. So whatever this sin of Jeroboam is, which grew out of his pragmatism, it leads to the destruction of Israel years later. Well, let's look at the sin of Jeroboam and be careful in our understanding. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to the Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, and he made two calves of gold and said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. 
He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burnt incense. That describes the sin of Jeroboam. Now, let's kind of pull that apart because it's going to be important for us. What Jeroboam does in adjusting religion is this. Number one, he fashions or refashions God in a way that is culturally acceptable. They don't feel comfortable with a God they can't see, they can't point to. When people in the other nations say, so what's your God like? What's he look like? Israel has to say, well, we don't know. We've never seen him. Never seen him. Never seen your God. Well, we see our God every morning. We have, an, we have a, a statue of him in the, the back of the house and the family has our morning devotions there. So Israel, in refashioning God, chooses to make a God like the people that live among them. And by the way, that is always the way idolatry goes. Israel does not make Chinese gods. They make gods that look like the people that live right around them. And when you make an idol, you don't make Chinese gods and you don't make golden calves. We make American idols. Now, he makes God into a form that is culturally easier to get along with. Second, he creates a form of worship for this God that is convenient for people. He sets up two rival worship centers and then a number of uh, lesser centers on, what they, the, the, on, the, on the hills and in the beautiful places. All right, so he sets up two, one in Dan and one in Bethel. Now, if, we don't, if you look in the back of your Bible, it's your Bible map, you can see. But Dan is a city far to the northern edge of Israel. And Bethel is the city far to the southern edge, right at the border of Judah and and Israel. Now, what's he done? If you live in the northern half of the ten tribes, you don't want to walk all the way down to Jerusalem. You can go to Dan. It's so close. If you live in the southern half, you don't have to go over to the neighbor's country. You You now have your own temple in Bethel. So he tells the people, it's just too hard to make those long trips. Here are two new temples for us. The third thing he does, he doesn't just adjust God, he doesn't just make worship convenient, but he begins an all-inclusive approach to leadership in the church. Anyone who wished could be ordained. You didn't have to be from the tribe of Levi, you didn't have to follow those, those very strict restrictions in the old covenant. If you want to be a priest, that's what you'd like to do. You can be made a priest. And then finally, even though this is so very different than the real religion, he set up the services to mirror the services of the Old Testament that were still going on in Jerusalem so that you could still feel like you were a part of true religion. Where did he get all of this? He devised it, verse 33 says, he got it from his own heart. Innovation. Now, when we read this, because it's Old Testament stuff, and we're, we're talking about cities that we haven't been to, and golden calves, and strange Levitical priesthood rules being broken, it's so easy for you not to get to the root of what's happening, because it's the same root of what's happening today. But so let's get to the roots. What is happening? Let me ask you the question. Who is the new God at the heart of the new religion of Jeroboam? It is not two golden calves. It is man. It's us. Jeroboam is at the heart of his religion. He, re, he creates an entirely adjusted religion in the north to prosper himself. Who's the heart of your religion, Jeroboam? It's not the golden calf. That whole religion serves Jeroboam. And when 
priests join and people come and the entire nation worships the golden calves. Is it really about the golden calves? Is there that touching loyalty to a lump of gold? No, it's really about me. Idolatry is always about me. It is the most man-centered religion ever to plague the Jews in the Old Covenant. What man wanted was the guiding thought behind everything. Now, it is also the great betrayal. Why do I say that? It is the betrayal of God. It is a treacherous choice that Jeroboam has made. God picks Jeroboam. He entrusts him with the nation. He promises him extraordinary privileges like the privileges David was given. And Jeroboam, because he doesn't trust God, leads the entire nation into idolatry. And he doesn't trust God. Why? Because he doesn't know God. So Jeroboam's low views of God lead the entire nation into idolatry. Just like Solomon's low views of God start the south on the wrong course. Now, that's a sad sight, but there is another sad picture that we have to look at. Let's go back to the king of the south, Rehoboam, where they have not started the worship of these golden calves. And let's look at the missed opportunity there. Now, for that, we need to turn to the book of 2 Chronicles, which is the parallel account of what we've been reading. But it adds some information that we don't find in the Kings. 2 Chronicles. Can you imagine being in the time of Jeroboam, uh, just being a person when this happened? You're a Jew, and you know all the promises God has made to the 12 tribes, starting way back with Abraham, and then the Exodus, and Moses, and God has brought you here. We've had King Saul, we've had King David, we've had King Solomon you have the temple, you have the mercy seat, you have the glory of God dwelling in that building. And then to your amazement, somehow something's gone wrong and the people of God are divided. This time of upheaval and questions, it is a particular opportunity for Rehoboam to point the people back to God. What do we read that happens? Well, let's look closely at what Rehoboam does. In chapter 11 of 2 Chronicles, in verse 13 through 17, we find a really bright spot. What we find here is that the Levites, the Levitical priests, who live up north in the ten tribes throughout the land, will have nothing to do with the golden calves. And so they decide to leave everything behind and immigrate south to be where God, the true God, is still worshipped. Not only that, all the people in the north who set their hearts to seek the living God, when they see the golden calves are now going to be the national religion, when they see the true preachers leave the land, they pack up and they go south as well. Look at verse 13. And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him. For the Levites left their common lands. The stand, by the way, is taken with Rehoboam. They left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons and for the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So what do we have? When the north declines into idolatry and the south still has its face set toward the living God. The ministers and those who set their heart on the Lord go the south. They strengthened Jeroboam for three years. Why just three years? Well, we read it this morning in chapter 12, verse 1. When Rehoboam had established the kingdom and strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. What we find is, in the fifth year of Jeroboam, God sends the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak to punish Judah. 
they beat Judah. They put Judah under the Egyptian thumb. And Judah has to pay yearly tribute. God doesn't let Judah be utterly destroyed. But God lets Judah feel the bitterness of living for a king other than him. What we find is this. The people move from the north to the south. And after a few years, even Rehoboam departs from the Lord. Now, God describes the life of of Rehoboam, the king, in verse 14. Look at how God describes Rehoboam. And he did evil in the... Sorry, and he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Is that your definition of evil at church here? Would you say, now that person is an evil person. I mean, really, that's not very nice to go around doing. So I'm not suggesting you start that. What is evil? What's evil? What's evil here? What do you consider evil? What does God consider evil? Have you ever thought that God considers every church member an evil church member who will not prepare their heart to seek the Lord? Who just kind of half-heartedly follows the leadership? If you know the Lord, then you know that is really an evil thing. Now we come to the last king, Asa. Second Chronicles chapter 14 and 15 tell the story of Asa. Asa is the grandson of Rehoboam. So we're in the south, we're in Jerusalem. Rehoboam drifts. Then his son Ahijah becomes king. He's worse. The nation is... By the time we reach the grandson of Rehoboam or the great-grandson of Solomon, the entire nation of Judah to the south is now involved in idolatry. There's idols everywhere. But strangely, this grandson Asa, though he becomes a king when he's still young, he, unlike his dad, unlike his grandfather Rehoboam, he sets his heart as a young man to seek the Lord. And he leads the nation in a period of repentance and removing idolatry. And so in chapters 14 and 15, we don't have time to read chapter 14, the Lord is so pleased with Asa that he blesses him and the entire southern half of Israel, Judah, experiences a season of real peace and prosperity. Then an Ethiopian army comes up against them with a million soldiers. There's no way that that Judah can... Match that number. Asa cries out to the Lord and says, You know we have sought you. We have, you know that we have turned our faces away from the idol. God, no one helps helpless people like you do. Help us. And God delivers them from the Egyptian army. And not only do they destroy the Egyptian army, but they bring back all this wealth and loot from the battle. And while they're coming back, God sends a prophet, Azariah, the son of Oded, To meet Asa on his way back. And he says some things to him that are very important. Let's read them in chapter 15 verse 1 through verse 7. Now the spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him. Hear me Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times, there was no peace to the one who went out and nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation. And city by city, for God troubled them with great adversity. But you, be strong, and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Well, what's going on? Well, Asa is confronted by the prophet, and this is the basic message. Remember the bad old days. We just never hear sermons like that because we're not really in the good old days right now. We, we feel like perhaps we can remember better days. So 
There's a very great difference between Asa's day and ours. God has given Asa such an extraordinary uh, enabling, and God has given the nation a real period of reformation. So God can say to them what he can't say to us, remember the battle days. Now, what about the battle days? Do you remember the days when Israel was far from the Lord? The living God was not worshipped among us. This is in the time of his father and grandfather. There was not priest, there weren't priests that you could trust to speak the truth. We didn't live by the law of God, and it was a dangerous place to live. People that went out and people that came in found it uh, not safe. But you've led the people to seek the Lord, and there's been a great reformation. Second part of the message don't stop now. There's still a lot to do. Try to reform a nation. I mean, try to reform your house. You say to your spouse, I think we ought to love the Lord more. I think we ought to follow him fully. And so I have a list of 13 things that I think you could do better. Or your children. It's hard enough to deal with the little idols that hide in the corners of my heart. Imagine trying to lead a nation of hundreds of thousands of millions of people. And all of them have been slipping into this idolatry. And there may be idols out in the woods. There may be idols in the bedroom. And so... The prophet says to him, it's not done yet. You haven't really finished the work, so continue. Don't let your hands grow tired. God will honor this. Well, the reform is continued. And in verses 10 and following, let's look at verse 12, 12 to 15. We find the ultimate result. He gathers together... He, he, he continues to reform. Now listen, he continues to reform in Judah. But Asa has conquered some lands that aren't in Judah. All right, He's taken over some property in the north. He's taken over some other countries, some property in other countries. And they're worshiping pagan idols. So Asa deals with the idolatry in Judah. And then he says, he sends his armies and says, go into the other areas where we presently control And make sure that you deal with the idolatry there as well, even though they're not in our nation. And then other people come down and join. Then the whole nation gathers together and enters into a covenant, verse 12 says, to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Then they took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. It's a great national revival. He was found by them. Well, that's the account of the four kings. Now, let's think of a couple of applications for today, because that just doesn't look much like Kansas to me. Or does it? Let me give you a couple of lessons, applications. First application is this. Never in religion is a good start enough. Solomon had a good start, but he ended poorly. Now, Solomon is not in hell. But if that's your only question when it comes to your choices, and preachers get that question a lot. Someone's leaving their Husband, I remember a young lady came to me, young couple, just married, within a few years. She was a very attractive lady. She found another guy that she liked. She said to me, if I divorce, are you saying I'm going to hell? And I said, no, that's not, okay, that's all I wanted to know. And so the rest of the conversation, though I talked a long time, her ears closed over and she just glazed over and uh, she didn't care what I said. If that's the question you have about your choices, are you saying Are you saying if I do such and such, I go to hell? I'm not saying Solomon went to hell. That's not really the big question. Solomon ended poorly and it affected the nation for generations to come. The sin of Jeroboam is not just Jeroboam's fault. The the kings that came after Jeroboam who followed Jeroboam's pattern, they're to blame. The people 100 years later that worshipped the golden calves... They're to blame. The parents that took their children to worship those golden calves, they're to blame. Jeroboam, of course, is to blame. Solomon is is to blame. How will you 
end Christian. I'm not talking to you, those of you who are not Christians. Christian, how are you going to end? Are you going to end well? When my family and I came back from Great Britain, and I'm not a southerner, all right? I grew up in Ohio. I've tried to straighten Tony out about this Civil War stuff, but he just won't listen to me. (laughs) I haven't, you know, it's hard to sleep in the basement when every picture down there is a rebel general. And uh, (laughs) I ran on the treadmill the other day. I ran really fast. You know, every person here is a rebel general. And so I've. I went over to the chessboard where it had the Yankees and, you know, the Confederates and the Union troops on this chessboard, and I knocked General Lee over. So I'm sorry if you're a General Lee fan, and I was kind of hoping it would help Tony, but it hasn't yet. (laughs) Now, when we came back from Great Britain, I thought surely I would not end up in the South. My wife is a Southerner, and, um, but we did in a little town, and there were a group of hungry people scattered throughout some different churches, primarily in one. And when I preached in the town, they said to me, can we start a church based on the kind of things that you're saying about Christ? I prayed about it. I felt so clear that was what I needed to do, even though the town was full of churches. The man that really was the main, the main elder and helper, he recently passed away, such a godly man, He was in his 50s when I met him, and this is what he said to me. He said, I have been the chairman of deacons for 20 years at the largest church in town. For 20 years, we have tried, some of us within the deacon body, to move the church to a more biblical place. But every time we get close, there's a vote, and the power families come in, and we're voted down. He said, I do not have, John, I do not have 25 more years to waste trying to build sandcastles. Church. How will you finish? Mom, Dad, how will you finish? When we filmed for the study, Behold Your God, we ended up in Europe a lot and some in the New England area. Every place we went, I think, I cannot think of one exception. Every place we went was a monument to a great work of God in the past and every one of them was a picture of the destruction of sin. Every one of them had finished poorly. Every one of them had departed from God. Every one of them. What a contrast. We build statues to the great saints, Jonathan Edwards, whoever, and the church that he pastored is now a rainbow church. And when I was sitting at a coffee shop across from his church, rainbow church meaning homosexual, gay, lesbian, whatever, That's Jonathan Edwards' church now. So I'm sitting in a coffee shop in the morning before we were going to to film at that location and um, trying to read over my notes, so nervous. And There was a man, a professor from a a college in the area, sitting with a Muslim young man who was over in the States to go to school. And he was talking to me. He says, look, I'm a Christian. You're Muslim. So I kind of perked up, you know, so I'm eating breakfast like this. And and he says, "Um, listen... Read the Bible. I read the Koran. Read the Bible. Now don't, now don't believe these people that say that Christ is the only way. He's one of the ways. But I want you to be acquainted with that. And he spent the rest of the time explaining to the Muslim, in my opinion, why there's no reason for him to risk any alienation in his culture by becoming a Christian because Jesus Christ is not essential at all. And I wanted to turn around and say to him, shut up, look, to the Muslim. If you're going to be a Muslim, be a real Muslim, but don't be this kind of guy who says nothing is real and and everything's okay. So either be a Muslim and hate Jesus Christ or be a Christian, but this guy's a liar. Every place we went, the monuments built to God's work in the past stood in sharp contrast with the present idolatry of man's heart. How will you end? There's a building program Coming up, right? Giving a lot of money. How do you guarantee that the people that use that building in 40 years will not be lying about Jesus Christ? Doesn't it ever bother you? What if you're funding future, a future idol center? How will you end? The choices you make now will affect that. 
Solomon's heart went after other gods because it got soft and the affection that he felt for his wives led him away from the Lord. Now Solomon had a lot of wives and a lot of concubines. That's a lot of pressure. What will it take for you? It won't take 700 wives, would it? What does it take to turn your heart away from the Lord as a church? The thought that if we make a few decisions differently, we'll grow? Is that all it takes? What about as a parent? How many parents, when their children are little and running around their knees and wearing them out, how many parents are so clear and bold that we will follow the Lord all the way to the end, but when the children are in their 20s and 30s and they're going through divorces and the kids come back to mom and dad and they, mom and dad know You dare not say what you know ought to be said at this point. Your children are brokenhearted. They're making wrong choices. Will you say the right thing in love? Or will you adjust your view of God to fit your children's present behavior? It's a rare thing for a parent, brokenhearted over a divorcing son or daughter, who can in love say to them, this is what God thinks. And I would risk my friendship with my own child to love you enough to tell you. What would it take for you? Solomon, it took a lot of wives and he missed his opportunity and the consequences were terrible. What will be the consequences if you don't finish well? Mom or dad or church? Now, I think it ought to terrify us in a way because, let me put it this way, how many Christians in their 70s or early 80s do you know who are following the Lord more earnestly now in their retirement years than ever they did when they were young? An old, earnest believer is a rare, precious thing. Most Most cool as they get older. I had a friend, a preacher, who once said to me, it's natural for us to grow cool toward God as we get older as ministers. Why? I know it feels that way, but why? What's the message we send to people if when we hit retirement age, our devotion for the Lord lessens and cools rather than strengthens? When I'm 40 and I love the Lord less than when I was 30, I read my Bible less, I show up to the meetings less, I just find it harder to do the things that once I yearned to do. What's the message I say to people? The more you know God, the less impressive He is. But for an older saint to go all the way to the end, ever increasing until they close their eyes here and open them on Christ You just can't preach a sermon like that from the pulpit. Nobody cares what preachers say, but people will remember that so-and-so died well. We've had many people converted in the little church I pastor, and real new birth is very beneficial to the body, isn't it? You see people really changed, and every Christian's benefited. But listen, a glorious, godly death is a great sanctifier in a church to watch men run and women run all the way to the end, dying of cancer, whatever, and telling the young people of Christ, earnest. I have seen the young people in the church converted because ministers in their 60s who are dying of cancer who attend the church went all the way to the end, so happy in Christ. How will you end? Solomon ended poorly. Second application. So not only is a good start never enough in Christianity, but second, do not mistake idolatry by looking for something that looks like a golden calf. The most common form of idolatry where you and I live is probably occurring on Sunday mornings. Now that sounds like a um, Paul Washer statement. Right? That sounds like I ought to yell it at you. I'm not nearly big enough to yell like Paul Washer, but um, do you think I exaggerate? Would you describe Jeroboam's new 
worship new, new system of religion as idolatrous or just, just a different version of the true worship of God? Well, surely you would describe it as idolatrous. What did he do? He adjusted God, he made religion convenient, and he was inclusive and tolerant so that anybody that wanted to take leadership could do it regardless of what God said. I want to ask you how that's any different than what is generally accepted as evangelicalism today. Have we adjusted God? Because it's not golden calves that are the big problem. Have we adjusted God so that culturally people can be more at ease with him? When I go to Christian bookstores and see the titles of the books and read the table of contents, and then I walk over into the t-shirt section, and then I walk over into the DVD section and the CDs, I ask myself this, would an angel who had been in the presence of the, of the unapproachably glorious God come down from heaven and go through this bookstore and recognize who they're talking about? Or would he say to himself, this is a different God than I know? We've adjusted God to fit the culture. Second, Jeroboam gave them a convenient religion, so it would be easier on them. We give people convenient religion. When we have a prayer meeting in the church and nobody comes to it, the preacher says, maybe it was too early, so he makes it an hour later and nobody comes to it, so he says, maybe we should have donuts. And then you have men's prayer breakfast. It's all breakfast. It's not much prayer. Listen, I know of a church that has the Lord's Supper with a drive through window. So in case you couldn't make it to church that day, you could drive through and you get the Lord's Supper like you would at McDonald's get your sandwich. How are we any different than Jeroboam in America? What about an all-inclusive leadership? Well, we know that denominations, now not the Southern Baptists, but other denominations are really rocking and reeling And dividing over questions of, should a woman be a pastor? Was Paul really saying that women shouldn't be in those leadership positions? Or is that just a wrong interpretation? Or others would say, was Paul only speaking to the culture that day and that doesn't apply to us? Then there are other denominations that are struggling with the question of homosexuality. Should a homosexual be a priest or a preacher? Now, if you are in a conservative church, in a conservative denomination, you find it very easy to answer those questions and to toss boulders over at your fellow churches and say, I can't believe you even go to that church. Do you know what your denomination is talking about? They're talking about letting homosexuals be pastors, and we would never do that. Listen, we have for so long, Southern Baptist churches, we have made every man who attends church with any regularity or every man who is a banker or a wealthy businessman has been made a deacon so that he'll be supportive of what we're doing, regardless of whether he ever fit the requirements that Paul gave. If you're young and attractive and can grow a goatee like Starbucks and have a laptop, an apple, sorry, no non-apple people are allowed to apply, you can be a youth director. But no one asks you, Tell me about your walk with the Lord. No, I mean tell me about your walk with the Lord. Long before anyone ordained homosexuals, we ordained men and women or men who had nothing in common with Paul's descriptions in the New Testament. How are we any different than Jeroboam? We have become all-inclusive. Now remember, who's at the heart of that religion? It's not a golden calf. It's us. I want to be a church leader. So I go to my pastor and say, I I feel like I have gifts. People tell me this all the time. I feel like I have gifts. I say, well, good. And then they stare at me. I think, oh, you mean you'd like to be put into a position of leadership? Well, let us watch your life for a while. Then they leave. Recently, I was shown a video clip by a young man who's in a who was in a, one of the cool, one of the, one of the fastest growing, what I call kind of cool, young, and restless churches where the, the doctrine sounds really good on paper, but the, the approach to worship's really very different. And uh, the man was showing me a clip, and this is a clip sent into the church as an advertisement for a man looking for the position of the head worship leader of this five-campus church, all right? Mega church, cutting edge, 
The pastor writes a lot of books about how to do church. He's a nice guy and he does a lot of great things. So someone is sending him their resume. But, you know, forget the resume. You just send it on your iPhone. So it shows the guy playing his guitar and he's kind of staring off and he's, he's, he's in his blue jeans and he's got his soul patch. Now look, someone showed that to me and I thought, well, so what? I mean, you don't have to dress like I do. You don't have to have a full beard or no beard. I mean, that's nothing. But then they showed what was going on. He was looking up, and from this, it was a big multi-purpose building like a gymnasium. And from the top of the gymnasium hung a rope, and there was a girl in flesh-colored leotards doing a rope dance while he sang about Jesus. And he was so proud of that that he sent that as his resume. See what cutting-edge innovation we do? I don't know why, when we read Jeroboam, we would be critical at all. We ought to make Jeroboam our patron saint so innovative. Jeroboam, where did you get that? Do you think Jeroboam's church numbers dropped when he invented this? They skyrocketed. Why religion is now a religion around a God that we feel comfortable with. It's convenient. We don't have to travel so far. You can be a leader. God is here so that you can use him for your talents, which is what that girl was doing. I have talents. I would like to use God as my stage to display my talent. I can just imagine the mother coming to the pastor saying, Preacher, my daughter uh, is an acrobatic rope dancer. I didn't know they existed, but all right. Well, she wants to use that gift for Jesus. Can she do it next Sunday? Sure. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it is if you're at Jeroboam's church. But I mean, I don't read the New Testament and think that that's probably the wisest choice. The problem with... American evangelicalism being like Jeroboam's church is this. It is that we are a very earnest, aggressive group of people, Americans. We're not like the British. The British sit around and think for a long time before they do anything. We have half a thought and rush out with a lot of money and manpower and do it all and look back and later and think, maybe, maybe we should have thought a little more about that one. But everywhere you go now in the world, everywhere, American missionaries have brought this religion. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India from Ireland in the late 1800s and early 1900s, said this, the sent, the people we send out as missionaries, always reflect the senders. There's no other way for it to be. So if this is the religion of our home, and then we send well-meaning young people out to the mission field, do you think that they switch religion on the plane? They bring it to the people there too. When I lived in Wales, I would preach in these little Welsh towns. They're old coal mining valleys. Very depressed. No one goes to church. Less than one-third of one percent go to church anywhere in the UK. So they're in a, in a small town like that of 5,000. You might have a charismatic church with about 20 and an evangelical church with about 20. And that would be it. Then the American team comes with puppets and high-powered music and, an, and a really capable young preacher. And in one week, they have more conversions reported than in that town has reported in 20 years. It's a miracle. It's a great work of God. It's revival. Until after a few months, the preachers realized that nobody who prayed the sinner's prayer with the American team has attended church since then. Next year, the Americans come back again. Maybe it'll be better. There's still some enthusiasm there. Not quite as much as first time. It's another revival. hundred more this year. But when those people don't join the church either and no one's being changed in town, how many years does it take before people quit listening to the American evangelist? I was always grieved when I would be preaching in Wales and hear that the Americans had visited. It doesn't have to be that way. But we'll have to rethink some things. Now, let me give you the last application. There is a missed opportunity among those who have the truth. So Jeroboam is a sad case, but I think the sadder case is Rehoboam. Jeroboam destroys the north by that open wickedness, but Rehoboam leads the south into idolatry by just being half-hearted about God. And then his son is a little less interested. And then the whole land is idolatrous. Think about what we just said about Jeroboam and Rehoboam. When Jeroboam sets up the golden idols, do you remember what I said happened? There was that little exodus that occurred, the immigration. True preachers, the Levites, and the people who set their heart to seek the Lord left their possessions 
They left everything, folks, and they went south. You don't think that that was costless, do you? You leave your family. You leave your job. You leave your house and the land that your family has always owned. You leave everything, and you pack up and you move to Jerusalem. So that Why? So that you can be among a people who are seeking a living God. And after all that sacrifice, for three years things seem well. But by five years, Rehoboam shows his true colors. He's not interested in seeking the Lord either. But what about the poor people that went down there because they were promised that this is the kind of place where people seek the Lord? Where do they go now? You can't go to the other nations. They're happy with pagan idolatry. You can't go back north. They're worshiping the golden idols. So you have a group of people that have made great sacrifices just to find some other people who are seeking the Lord. And now there they are, disillusioned. I told you that I think today is a day of great opportunity because things are getting bad. But when things get bad, Americans turn off their television and start looking at each other and saying, uh, anybody got an answer better than what I just heard from Oprah or Dr. Phil? So they do start asking questions. We do have a window here, folks. You have a window. You are in a church purely by the kindness of God. He has planted a church in Kansas. Now, I don't know Kansas, but I know your pastor. And you have had a consistent, earnest, honest, transparent ministry trying to point you to the clearest views of God and of the work of Christ. You are not Jeroboam's people. You are in Rehoboam's territory, you know. You've got the truth. But if people come here because they say, I know about your pastor, which of course everybody knows about Tony. So I know your pastor. I mean, he sends me stuff in the mail all the time. Charles Spurgeon stuff, stickers, bottles of water from Spurgeon's river that he was baptized in. He sends me books that are good. I mean, your pastor has labored to do more than just help you, but to reach out and to be a tool in the hand of the Lord for many churches. What if they come to this church because they know of you from what your pastor believes and they come here and they leave their church that they grew up in and they, they offend their families and it costs them a lot and they come and sit in here and at first they're excited because the things that Tony and the other pastors are saying about God and they say, this is biblical, but then after a while they look around and they realize that you aren't seeking God any more than their church was at home. What if you're just words? The church I pastor in North Mississippi is surrounded by churches, but strangely, the Lord has sent us people from different places. Young men, usually young men training for the ministry. I have a meeting coming up with a young couple from Florida who have been praying about coming to the church because of what they heard about the church on the Behold Your God study, because of what they know that we say we believe. There's a young man in the church right now studying for the ministry who is a Native American from Canada, and he moved from Canada. We have a number of ministers who move, who quit their jobs and find any job in the town that we're in, which is not easy, and bring their little kids and their wives, and they plant their families in this tiny town to come to the church. My greatest fear is that they will, after a while, say within themselves... We paid a high cost to come here, but you don't seek the Lord any more than anyone else. You're just talkers. It's not Jeroboam that bothers me. It's Rehoboam. Am I a Rehoboam? Am I a professional talker? I have older books, so I say different words than the guy down the street that has newer books and says the new words. And so people think that maybe I know God because I say old words. But what if they come and they stay with me and they say, you don't have anything more. I came to your church and God wasn't there. Just old words. I miss a lot of nights of sleep wondering, am I Rehoboam? Is that how I'll make my choices? Now we've been talking about these things And it sounds so negative, but listen, it does not have to be King Asa. King Asa, think again. 
Jeroboam becomes the idolatrous leader of the north. Rehoboam looks like he's going to seek the Lord. People move to where Rehoboam is. Sadly, they're disappointed. But his grandson, this is a long time after this. These people have died. There's new people now. The whole nation's involved in idolatry. Asa leads them in reformation. And in verse 9 of chapter 15, it says that people from other countries and from particularly from Israel who longed to know God, they heard that God was with Asa. So they do the same thing that happened under Jeroboam's day. They leave everything and move to Jerusalem again. This is a whole different wave of people. But this, this wave, with one heart and soul, they determine to seek the Lord and they find him. And they're not disillusioned. That could be you, couldn't it? Why not? John Wesley, leader of the Methodists, said that religious enthusiasm, which is the old word for religious fanaticism, it doesn't mean you're really excited about Jesus, it means that you're a bit nutty. Not in a good way. You're a fanatic. Here's what religious fanaticism is, he said. Desiring the goal but not desiring the steps that God has placed in front of us that lead to the goal. We want to be that kind of church. We want to be Asa's kind of church. We don't want to be Jeroboam. We don't want to be Rehoboam. But do you want to make the choices that are necessary to become, to reach that goal? What's necessary? Well, the passage in 2 Chronicles 15 says, they covenanted together that they would set their hearts to seek the Lord. They already had enjoyed such privileges, but now... We're not going to stop short. We're going to seek the Lord. And anyone who wouldn't seek the Lord is going to be put to death. Don't do that. And with one heart they sought him. And he let them find him. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? If in the future, some other pastor here who's a history nut. Wrote about your generation and said. The church had many years blessed of the Lord But it was in this period that they set their heart to seek the Lord. They covenanted together. They held each other accountable. And God let them find him. And it was the beginning of a great revival. Wishing it will never be enough. Now, one last word, and that's for those of you that are not Christians. And here's what I mean. It's not that you disagree with the words on the page. It's that you hold them at what you foolishly think is a safe distance. You stiff arm them. And you hear these things and you wonder, is it real? Could it be real? Or is it just Sunday talk? And you try to clean yourself up. And all you do is come under an unbearable weight of legalism, which you can never satisfy. What if you did just what the people in Asa's day did? I will determine that even if no one else goes with me, I will seek the Lord. I'm going to open the Bible to the Gospels and I'm going to cry out to God and I'm going to say to him, if you're there, God, if this is your son, you've got to rescue me too. Why not me, God? And if by the grace of God you can set your heart on that, he will let you find him. Well, God help us.